Okay, well, if you guys want to turn to Acts chapter 16, we've made it to Acts chapter 16. It's where we're at. Um, while, you, while you guys are turning there, I thought maybe I would just uh, start right off the bat with, with hitting you guys up with a, a question from last week. Last week in Acts chapter 15, we saw um, two conflicts arise in the, in the early church. Two conflicts. What, what were the two conflicts that we looked at? Last week, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. That was one of them. What was the conflict with those guys? What happened? They didn't want to take John Mark and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. Yep. Paul was one to set out for the sec- set uh, set out on the second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take uh, John Mark, his cousin, with them, but Barnabas did not want to take John Mark with him because Barnabas, uh, because John Mark had deserted them on the first missionary journey. So Paul did not want to take him on the second journey. And it caused a great division. It says that, uh, uh, that they divided on that issue. And, uh, yeah, that, that was. It was a sharp disagreement, Luke describes it as being, and they separated from each other. Barnabas took uh, Silas, and uh, Barnabas took John Mark on a separate missionary endeavor. What was the other conflict that we saw in Acts chapter 15. I'm a guess we weren't here, but I'm guessing the issue of circumcision. Yes, that's right. The issue of circumcision was a, was a point of division uh, because in Paul and Barnabas' church up in Antioch, some men came from Judea and started teaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so from there what happened was it caused um, the church to send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem where the apostles were, where the elders of the church were in, in Jerusalem, and they met and had a church council to lay in stone what uh, was necessary for the Gentiles who were going to be saved. Uh, what, were they, what was necessary for them to do to be, in order to be saved? Did they need to be circumcised? Did they need to become a Jew? Did they need to come under the Mosaic law? And what was decided was exactly what had been uh, preached and known since the beginning was that it is not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised. It was not necessary for Gentiles to come under the Mosaic law in order to be saved. They were saved by faith alone in Christ. They did not need to become Jews in order to be saved. And so that that was resolved. That issue was resolved um, at the council in Acts chapter 15. Yes, that's, that's great. Glad you guys, Jason wasn't even here and he knew that. That's pretty good. Okay, so let's, let's pick up. Um, in Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see is that Paul and Barnabas uh, divided from each other. They separated. Paul takes Silas with him. And, and, and Paul's going to head out, which ends up being his second missionary journey. And uh, he's going to take Silas with him. And if you guys want to, as we've been doing, if you all want to flip back and, and look at the maps, if you guys have enjoyed, if that's been helpful to look at the map and, and trace the steps of the missionaries as they spread the gospel, now would be a good time to flip back because the Apostle Paul is going to set out on his second uh, missionary journey here. What I'm going to do is I'll read the, the last couple verses of chapter 15 and the first verse of chapter 16, and, and that way you can track, if you want to, where these missionaries are um, on their journey here. And so remember, all of Paul's missionary journeys begin at his church in Antioch. So the first place you want to find is Antioch. That's where Paul's uh, church is at, and we're talking about uh, Syrian Antioch, not Pisidian Antioch. So the, the, the Syrian Antioch, if you find Jerusalem, just go straight north, 
until you run into Antioch. You'll eventually get there about, I think, uh, 100 miles or so north of Jerusalem. So that's where they're going to head out from. And Acts chapter 15, verse 40 says, But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia. Um, those are not cities. Those are regions. So see if you can find the regions. They're probably in all caps because they're not cities. They're regions. Syria and Cilicia. And they were traveling through these regions, strengthening the churches. And then Acts chapter 16, verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and then to Lystra. Derby and then to Lystra, which are cities. <coughs> so if you find Derby and Lystra, um, you may remember that Paul was there in his first missionary journey. So um, these are pretty close to the coast of the Mediterranean. But that's where we're going to stop, in Lystra. That's where we're going to be at from, for, for a little bit at least. So if from Lystra you want to turn back to Acts chapter 16, verse 1, um, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up there. But just keep in mind that this area they, that, that they're in right now, they've already been there once. Paul, at least, has already been there once. This is the, the greater region of southern Galatia. So these churches that we're looking at right now are actually the churches that Paul's going to eventually write the book of Galatians to. These are the very same churches. I just like to keep all that in mind. So Acts chapter 16, verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And so this is where uh, we meet Timothy. We all know Timothy. Uh, this is where Paul meets Timothy. This is the very man who Paul will write um, those two epistles to. He will write the letters of First and Second Timothy to this man, this young man that he meets here. Um, Timothy is going to eventually become an elder in the church at Ephesus, and that's why Paul ends up writing these letters to him to teach him how to um, teach him how to manage the church and how to, to work in the church. Timothy is going to become something of like a spiritual son to the Apostle Paul. Uh, but the text also here tells us in verse 1 a little bit about Timothy's background. It says that his mother was a Jew, and she was a believer, a Christian, but his father was a Greek, a.k.a. a non-believer. And so what we have here is par uh, the parents of Timothy were, uh, one was a believer, one was not. Uh, but even despite this parental mixture of religion and race, uh, verse 2 goes on to tell us here in Acts chapter 16, it says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So not only was this young man Timothy well spoken of in his hometown of Lystra, uh, Luke also tells us that he was well spoken of in the neighboring city of Iconium. Uh, this young man is well spoken of in, in not only his own town, but the neighboring towns. And this is a lot to say for a very young man. Timothy is, in fact, a very young man. The question always comes up, how young was Timothy? That's what everybody wants to know. Now, the Bible doesn't give us an age. It doesn't tell us exactly how young he was, but this might be helpful to develop in your mind uh, Timothy's uh, youthfulness. Because think about it like this. From this point here, from the point that Paul meets Timothy here in Lystra, um, 14 years after this, Paul's going to write that first epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 14 years from this point. And 14 years from this point, when he writes that letter, in that letter he's going to tell, he's going to be encouraging Timothy not to allow the church to disregard him because of his youthfulness. 
So 14 years from this point, Paul's still um, speaking of the youthfulness of Timothy. So imagine how young he is here at this point. You know, Timothy is a very, very young man who is uh, well spoken of in the churches. I think that this uh, should also encourage any of the young, young folks in our church um, that God can and will, in fact, use uh, youthful people um, in mighty ways, as we're going to see with Timothy. Amen. Um, it's just as what uh, Paul encourages Timothy with in 2 Timothy, where Paul told Timothy to do this. He said, cleanse yourself and be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That was Paul's encouragement to Timothy, to, to sanctify yourself, uh, uh, set yourself apart, be holy, so that you can be useful for the master, right? So that's what, that's what useful uh, folks and all of us really need to do. We need to set ourselves apart, be holy, so that the Lord can use us. Um, and that's exactly what verse 3 is going to go on to show with Timothy. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. It says, Paul wanted this man, speaking of Timothy, this young man, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And so think about it. I mean, I don't know how old Timothy is at this point, but I'm, he is very young. He's, he may be under 20 at this point. And the Apostle Paul wants this young man to join him in his missionary endeavors. And if you remember from Paul's first missionary, uh, missionary trip, that's no small task. We're talking about stonings, beatings, imprisonments. This young man, Paul saw something in this young man to want to take him along with him on these journeys. Uh, so verse 3 goes on to say that he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they knew that his father was a Greek. So we're going to have to hold on a minute right there and, and ask the question, um, has Paul already forgotten what we just saw in Acts chapter 15, the, the point that, that Jason brought up, that there was this disagreement over circumcision? Is circum they, they, was circumcision necessary to be saved? Did Paul forget all that discussion about, no, circumcision is not necessary? Um, why in the world is he having Timothy in the very next chapter, uh, why is he having Timothy to be circumcised then? Any thoughts on that? Why, after all of that, that commotion about circumcision and then determining that it is not necessary, why is uh, Timothy immediately being circumcised so soon after this? Any thoughts? Yes, Jason. Well, later he says, I have become all things that I might reach some. Mm -hmm. And so he had the liberty to do it, even though he didn't have the obligation to. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's going on. I mean, we kind of see it in verse 3. He gives the reason there. Um, he says, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they knew that his father was a Greek. Um, there's, it's not a, a long, drawn-out explanation, but the reason is, Paul's being just weary of the consciences of these people they're attempting to minister to. If you remember, when Paul goes into any new city, where's the first place that he goes and preaches? Synagogue. He finds a synagogue, and he goes and preaches to the Jews first. Um, so with that in mind, and him wanting to minister to the Jews primarily, or not primarily, but at least um, first, uh, Paul is just simply removing a stumbling block that would have, in fact, been a stumbling block. He wouldn't have been able to bring Timothy, this uncircumcised, half-Jew, half-Gentile, right into the, to the mix of these people who he was ministering to. Um, so Paul was just simply, just as Jason said, um, Paul's living out what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. I actually put in that text here in my notes. This is what Paul says there. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, 
I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without the law. Now that, that's, that's a hard section to track with what Paul's saying, but all he's saying is he will do anything uh, to, to remove any hindrance uh, for the gospel going out to any different people group. Um, although it seems like Timothy was the one, in fact, making the sacrifice here. He was the one being circumcised. But that just, again, goes to show you the, fact, the, uh, the uh, faithfulness of Timothy. Now we see why this was a good man to choose. He was willing to be circumcised. Yes, sir? Did, did he stop eating pork? Or that's not mentioned? Or? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that when they went to go uh, minister amongst these Jews, they did not, you know, they were definitely kosher at that point, just to not, not because they needed to be, just like Jason said, it was not required at all. That was already determined. Jesus had already made all foods clean, but they just didn't want to stumble these people so that they still had this open door to preach the gospel. Uh, I thought of a, a recent example uh, that I think that this kind of applied to me was recently I heard, uh, some of you may know who James White is. He does a lot of debates against all different kinds of people, but he was going to debate these, these uh, Muslims. Um, in a mosque, and, and, and he had said how, at some point he had mentioned how he had to take his shoes off to go in the mosque, and at first I'm like, James, what, why in the world are you taking your shoes off, you know, don't you realize that that just means nothing, but what he was doing is the same thing that they're doing here, he's just simply removing a stumbling block so he can go in, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to uh, downplay the gospel we know of in any sense of the matter, but he's just removing this stumbling block, you know, being considerate, and so that he could go in and minister to them, you know. That's, that's one thing that I saw recently. That I, at first, I kind of thought, hey, you don't need to do that. But then I thought, you're doing that so that you can remove a stumbling block so you can minister to the Muslims, you know. So without compromising the gospel, um, they're just simply uh, keeping this open door so they can minister. That, that's what was going on there. Um, so now we have this band. Now it's Paul, it's Silas, and Timothy, this is the group now. This is the missionary group, uh, the missionary team that's going to be moving out and revisiting all these churches. Now, verse 4 here is going to include a little note on, on, on one of the means of encouraging the churches that they were revisiting. Verse 4 says, Now, while they were passing through all these cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. Now, those decrees he's mentioning are the decrees that came out of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Remember that they had decided that, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to come under the Mosaic law. But the council did give a few uh, uh, stipulations that would be very wise and necessary for the, for the Gentile Christians who had just been saved, some stipulations to not cause the Jews to stumble, some food regulations, uh, staying away from idolatry, staying away from... Uh, sexual sins, you know, just, just things that they could do that would not cause the Jews too much stumbling so that they could fellowship with them. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy take this decree to the other Gentile churches and encourage them with the, the good news here. Um, it says in verse 5, because of this, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. And so Paul takes this decree that that would show these, these Gentiles that they're saved by grace 
apart from the law. And uh, he's reminding the churches that they've been saved by this grace. And the churches are encouraged by this news. We talked about last time how encouraging to be to find out, yes, I don't have to come under all the Mosaic law in order to be saved. You know, I don't have to perfectly keep the law in order to be justified. That would be very encouraging. Grace is very encouraging. Um, and that's what was happening here. But what's interesting is that they were encouraged to the point of growth. Right? So the question for me as I read this, I thought, are we being so strengthened in the faith, so encouraged by the grace of God, that when we leave here it's still spilling over into other people? Is, is, are we so encouraged by the grace of God that, that it, we're leaving here with it overflowing to, so people are hearing the gospel and coming in and, we're, and our numbers are being added to daily? I mean, look how he describes it. The, they were increasing in number daily. These churches were alive. They were, they were evangelistic. They were sharing the gospel. They were strengthened in the faith and grace of God. And it was causing the church to grow. You know, it's, it's challenging to us. Is that how we leave this place? So encouraged and strengthened in the faith that it spills over into everybody we come in contact with. Uh, we don't want to be, you know, as they say, the frozen chosen. We don't want to be that. We want to leave here strengthened in the grace of God. Okay, so this is our missionary group. Um, if you want to turn back again to the maps, for those of you who would like to do that, um, here, uh, the missionaries are going to cover some very significant ground. I mean, many, many, many miles, just in these, this next little section of seven verses. So if you want to track, um, just, just find uh, Lystra and Iconium. That's where we were at here. That's where they picked up Timothy. If you want to find those, those cities, they're going to head out from there. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 12. They're going to track all the way until this little journey is done here, and they finally find where they're going to. As you track, also try to listen to the text, because the text has more to say than just where they're going. Some very interesting um, directions are given to them as they go, so see if you can do both. But verse 6 says this, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions. So those are regions, not cities, so it's probably in all caps again. These are the regions they were working their way through. Phrygian and Galatians, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Right? So they were going that way, toward, they were going west towards Asia. The Holy Spirit forbids them. And so if, if you're looking at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, it's probably going to have a line that, that tracks this. It's going to end up going straight north. They're not able to go west into Asia. They're going to have to head straight north. After they came to Mysia, see if you can find Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. Bithynia is the very north, northern section of Asia Minor. They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not uh, permit them. They were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Troas, if you can find it, it's on, it's on the coast. Troas, far western, northwestern coast of Troas. But keep tracking with me, we're not done. Um, a vision now appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight course to Samothrace. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but you can find it. It's a little island, Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there 
to Philippi. Philippi, Philippi, which is the leading city of the District of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So Philippi is where we're going to be in the text for some days, Luke puts it. So you can turn back to Acts chapter 16. But they've made their way all the way from southern Galatia to Philippi. Philippi is an area of Macedonia, which is uh, what we call modern-day Europe. The gospel has now gone all the way to Europe. Right, that's where Wally and Joanne are going to be, right? Yeah, that was no, no easy journey. I'm looking at this map here where they're going north, and there's all these mountains. Man. And, and they didn't go into, uh, what did you say, Bithynia? Mm-hmm. And they just kept going. I mean, that's, that's no two- or three-day journey. That's Well, they're walking most of it, too. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing where they did. And that's why Paul is able to talk about, you know, in the Corinthian letters, all these in dangers that they came upon, dangers when traveling. You know what I mean? That's because they were going to all these uh, very dangerous and, and, and hard territories. Yeah, that's right. So now we've made our ways into Europe, all the way into Philippi. Um, and I don't know if you could notice while you're tracking with your, uh, with your map, but did you hear all the ways in which this journey was sovereignly directed by God? It's, it's really amazing. In verse 6, if you're back in Acts chapter 16, Notice verse 6, what it said there. The guys, the missionaries, were trying to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbade them to go that way. Then in verse 7, they tried to go north into Bithynia, like Carlos is saying, but the Spirit of Jesus, which is another, another uh, way of saying the Holy Spirit, did not per- permit them to go that way. And then in verse 9, Paul receives this vision of a man from Macedonia calling out for help, calling out for gospel help. Um, it's really amazing how God directed all of this. Um, so it's also helpful to mention that as the Spirit directed all, you know, you hear, what do you mean the Spirit didn't want him to go into Asia? What do you mean the Spirit didn't want him to go into Bithynia? It's not as if um, God doesn't want the gospel to ever go to these places. It, it most certainly eventually will. Um, if you think about it, Timothy will be a pastor in a church in Asia. The gospel most certainly is going to go there. Uh, Bithynia is actually going to be the, the place where some of the most significant church councils are ever held. Uh, the Council of Nicaea will be held in Bithynia, Chalcedon. Uh, the gospel will most certainly go to these places, but what we're seeing here is God's timing. We're seeing God direct the gospel to where he wants it to go. And so in God's timing, he wants the, gospels, the, 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 the missionaries to go to Macedonia and specifically to Philippi. Um, so the, these missionaries were planning their way but the Lord was most certainly directing their steps. Okay, so one more small bit of information before we leave this section. Look back in verse 10, because there's an interesting uh, tidbit of information here. Um, Maybe you didn't pick it up. It's very easy to to miss, but I'm going to read verse 10 again. It says, when he had seen the vision, speaking of Paul, seeing this vision of this man, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, to preach the gospel to them. And so what, this, uh, what begins here is what these, these commentators and the scholars, they call it the we section of Acts. The we second section, the, the, the second person plural pronoun is the first time it's used here, we. So what's happening here is Luke, the author of Acts, is all of a sudden including himself in these journeys. It's the we section of Acts. So obviously what's happening here is uh, the team picked up Luke here in Troas. He actually joins the missionary, uh, the, the, the team here. 
And so he starts including himself in all of most of these events. They call it the we section. Um, so all four of these guys are now in Philippi. And uh, the thing about Philippi is, is that there's no synagogue in Philippi. There's no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. Um, as we just talked about earlier, Paul's custom was always to go to the synagogue first. So as they get to Philippi and there's no synagogue, Paul's going to have to come up with a plan B. Paul's going to have to come up with a plan B, which of course is always God's plan A in the first place. But what this is going to lead to is the very first converts in the continent of Europe. That's what we're going to see. Let's pick up at verse 13. Verse 13 says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, which is another way of, of stating that she's like a God-fearer, kind of like Cornelius was. Um, this woman was listening. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So back to verse 14. What does it say that the Lord did to her heart as she was listening to this message spoken by Paul? What did the Lord have to do to her heart? The Lord opened her heart. Now, how could the Lord do something like that to this poor woman, Lydia? He goes in and just violates her free will and opens up her heart and makes her respond to Paul's teaching of, of the gospel. How could, you know, how could he do something? Well, this is the beautiful act of what we call regeneration. The Bible calls it that as well, regeneration. This is when God actually, uh, in his grace, changes the human heart so that you can respond to the gospel. That's what we're seeing here. God, the, the act of regeneration on this woman. God has a, a woman he wants to save, so he goes in and, and does all the necessary things to save her. I see you, Kim, but let me just finish this one statement here. Because it's important to see um, what all goes into the saving of this woman, Lydia, and her household, uh, I've mentioned. But remember the first step in this, this whole process is that God sovereignly directs the gospel to come to her. It wasn't an accident. God, we saw how God directed all of these things. Um, he prevented them from going elsewhere so that they would go right here, right here to this time, to this place, to this woman, and bring the gospel to her. So the first step, the gospel has to come to you. But that in itself is not enough. God also does something else with the gospel if he's saving somebody. The second step was here that God does the necessary work of changing the heart. That has to be there as well. Besides just the, the preached gospel, the spirit has to be there um, to change the heart so that she could respond. Um, so all we're seeing here is the grace of God being worked out for this woman's salvation. Now, the question for you guys is, why is it necessary? Why does God need to change the heart? Why does he need to open up her heart um, to receive the gospel? Why is that necessary? Why wasn't just hearing the gospel message enough for her to believe? Spiritually dead. Yep. To awaken her. Spiritually dead to awaken her. Yeah, any other descriptors maybe that comes to your mind that the Bible uses to speak of people? Um, why, why can't people just believe? Heart of stone. Yeah. yeah. Break the walls down. 
they're blind. Blind. They must be born again. Yeah, those are, those are all biblical descriptions of, of people before having this heart change, before being born again. Some of the texts that came to my mind was um, Romans 8 where it says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Before you are, are given the Spirit, before the Spirit does His work, you are hostile with God. You're not neutrally sitting by the river, you know, seeking God. Um, you are hostile in your heart and your mind to God. You're actually fighting against God and everything about His gospel. You're fighting the gospel of grace, whether you know it or not. Um, Ephesians 2 describes it as dead in our trespasses and sins. You're dead. You're not just sick, you know, looking for the cure. You're dead. Um, Romans 1.18, men are suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And then John 6.63, I mean, John 6 says, the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. So apart from the spirit, you're going to profit nothing. Yeah. Nothing's going to come just from the flesh and in, in, in mental capacity. Yes, Emilio? Well, I was just going to say, I know Kim has something to say too. Yes, yes, sir. I want to real quick. Um, you know, it says that she was a worshiper of God, okay, but uh, mm -hmm. I think that just shows it like it's not enough to be religious. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Plenty of people that go to church every Sunday are religious people, but maybe they're not. They haven't been regenerate. They're truly not born again. That, that yeah, very question. good. That's very exactly good. what I was going to ask. Was that past tense? Like it was saying she was a worshiper of God, and then I automatically assumed, okay, so she already believed. Like, yeah. And then it said that she was listening, and then the Lord opened her heart. So I was confused about that. Yeah, so it's kind of like this descriptor word. Like you had proselytes and you had God-fearers. Mm -hmm. These are two categories that Gentiles or Jews describe Gentiles who came into the synagogue and uh, worshipped. They could have been religious people. They could have been saved, uh, right? But here I don't get that she was saved, being that God's doing this work for her, you know, so that she would believe. I don't think her heart would have already been opened. But um, so, yeah, you had God-fearers in the synagogue who worshipped, at least outwardly, the God of Israel. You know, they, they believed in the, the, the religion. They may not have been saved. We don't just saying that somebody's a God-fearer isn't saying that, you know, uh, maybe the way we say it, you fear the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just a category of people that would worship Gentiles in the synagogue who practice the religion. It just doesn't necessarily tell you if they're really regenerate or not. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. not a, yeah. So um, it actually is a different word there um, than God-fear in Cornelius' mention. But, yeah, m most don't think that she was saved just because of the description here of what happens as she hears the gospel. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that's... That's definitely a, a good thing to notice. Um, so what we see here is God doing this miracle of salvation in this woman, and that's what uh, salvation is. Um, everybody um, still believes in miracles if, if you believe that this is what happens when somebody gets saved. Um, God is definitely at work in the salvation of Lydia, and the text told us her whole household. God was mightily at work here. Her whole household believes and is baptized. And so what we're going to see now as we go on here, wherever God is at work, the enemy is not far away. So let's read from verse 16 following. It says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, so they're going back to this place of prayer again, that they first met Lydia in the first place. They're going back to this place of prayer, and they're a slave girl having a spirit of, div of divination met us, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are the bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. 
And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. Amen. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And so as I said, uh, the God is most certainly at work here, but we also see the enemy always at work as well, even, even um, attempting to thwart here the, the ministry of the gospel. We've seen it all through Acts. Acts chapter 8, Simon had to deal with the sorcerer. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas have to deal with Elimus, that magician who was trying to sway the proconsul away from believing the gospel. And now we have this demon-possessed slave girl, uh, this demon who's actually the one harassing these, mini- these uh, missionaries. Uh, but, but the text tells us um, the motive behind uh, these, these owners of this slave girl bringing them before the, the magistrates was that they were losing their profits. The demon had been removed. Now she couldn't do this divination, this fortune-telling anymore. They were losing money. That's why they really brought her uh, before the magistrates. Um, but they, they, that's not the reason that they give to the, the authorities. They say that these men are teaching customs contrary to us being Romans, which I think it, anything they could have used to, for that accusation would have just been simply the gospel call that Paul and them were probably preaching you were to turn from all your polytheism and your polytheism and your idolatries to the true and living God, that would step on an idolater's toes. Mm-hmm. You would be changing their customs as they would hear it. Um, so that, that's just the accusation that they used. They didn't say, yes, they removed this demon from this girl who now can't bring us money. That's not what they said. Um, so even deception in that case. But let's go on, verse 22 and following, because the persecution is going to continue here. Verse 22 says, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But... Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so I just, man, when I read this, I thought, this right here is the faith um, necessary to be a missionary. This is the faith that that a missionary needs. You must be ready to suffer. And if indeed suffering comes, if it does come, you need to be ready to suffer well. And that's what we see here, them suffering well. I mean, I guarantee the blood is still running down their backs as they're sitting here praying and singing hymns. This is the same night. Um, Remember how Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, they were flogged, they were threatened not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. And how did it describe them leaving That, that, um, that flogging? It said that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's amazing faith that these missionaries had. Um, So Paul and Silas, these are the only two that seem to have gotten arrested. They were the the only two who were Jews, and that was sort of the accusation. This 
this Jewish um, antagonism to the Roman uh, ways. Christianity at this point really hadn't been separated from Judaism, they think is the issue, why they would have picked on the Jews um, so much. Um, remember, we're in Philippi. We're far away from Jerusalem. People would be viewing them in a very simplistic way. But um, So Paul and Silas, they're ministering to the Lord uh, amidst their um, pain, but they're not only ministering to the Lord, they're also ministering to all of these other prisoners through their prayers and their singing. And then when all of a sudden, verse 26 says, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So why, why in the world, would this jailer awake, there's been this earthquake, he sees that all the, the doors are open to the prison. He shows up, the doors are open to the prison, he doesn't see any prisoners. Why would he be inclined to kill himself? That was the, that was the way they did it. If, um, under his watch, they escaped, then he is to be executed. Yeah, that's right. Accountability in, in that sense. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, we actually saw a mention of this back in Acts chapter 12. Because uh, you remember, Peter got miraculously um, uh, saved from his prison by that angel, you know, the, the angel walked him out of the prison. And uh, there in Acts chapter 12 it said, When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and then ordered that they be led away to the execution. So that was the punishment for, for dereliction of duty, I guess, yeah. how you could say it. But, Mike, some pressure? What if you guys would have got out of your prison? What would have happened? You would have been treated worse because it's a whole thing. Right. Prosecuted by the full sense of a law. Right. Okay, because he's knowing better. Right. Yeah, these, these guys, I mean, they had specific instructions. Guard them securely, so we went and put them in the very innermost part. I mean, it wasn't like these guys were just in the outskirts, you know, walking around on the fence and snuck on these. They, they were supposed to be guarded, and they, they weren't. Well, they were, but, I mean, they're not, you can't be guarded with God. These guards here would have received a greater fate mm -hmm. today. Oh, yeah. You probably would have got rode up today or something like that, maybe. Well, maybe charges filed on you. You might have to time, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or take your money away. Wow. Take your pension away, whatever. It depends on the severity. Right. You know. Well, this guy would have paid with death. <coughs> right, that's why. Yeah, Carlos is right. Well, that, that keeps down the bribes, too. You know, somebody bribing the guard, wow. you know, back then. Is right. Good. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so that's what happened. This guy's about to kill himself because he thinks, man, this, all, my guard, all my prisoners got away. But verse, eight said, verse 28 says, Paul seeing this, that this guy was about to kill himself, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. It's very interesting. Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're all here. Nobody had fled the prison, even though the text tells us the doors opened, their shackles came off, but they didn't flee. Even the, other, even the other prisoners didn't flee, even though God had performed this miracle. Um, God performed this miracle of an earthquake coming, an earthquake that's so powerful that it says it shook the, it shook the foundation of the, the place. Doors were open, shackles were released, yet nobody was injured or killed. It was a miracle, you know, a miracle type of thing happening here. 
Um, but God, even with all that, didn't have the prisoners escape for a very important reason. But even before we get to that very important reason, I think it's just amazing the fact that they didn't, they didn't flee, even though they most likely could have. I'm sure there was more of them than there was just Paul and Silas. So why didn't they flee? Um, I mean, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. It's kind of conjecture, but I mean, I think we can, from the fact that it doesn't even say why, I think we have to assume that, man, these, these prisoners realized what was happening. They, 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 they realized, they made the connection between the God who Paul and Silas had been preaching, who were ministering to, and how they were suffering well. This God answered their prayer. This God was doing something miraculous. And they had a fear. They had a fear of Paul and Silas' God. Um, and then that, that humbled them in a sense. And maybe that's why they didn't fear. Maybe it was just simply, um, as I was thinking about this, and talking about the faithfulness of Paul and Silas as they suffered this, would have, this may, have, may have done something to these fellow prisoners as they saw how these men were faithfully suffering. You know, they would have been blo- a bloody mess. They say these, these rods that these guys would uh, whip the backs with like an inch thick dowel rod, basically, and they were not lightly, you know, they weren't fearing exasperating these, you know, they were, they were beating these guys with many blows. They called them many blows. So... These, these, these other prisoners see the faithfulness of Paul and Silas um, in the midst of their persecution, and that may have been a, a, a something that God was using to keep the prisoners there. You know, and I just thought, man, in the same way it should encourage us to suffer well, to suffer well, because the world does see that, and God can use that as well. I'm not saying he'll use that apart from the gospel to save people. Of course, the gospel was there. These guys were singing praises and had already been preaching the gospel. It was no mystery, I'm sure, why they were there. Uh, but the world will see how we suffer, and they can take notice of that. So suffer well and, and glorify the Lord through your suffering. Um, but now let's get to the reason why God's doing all this, because it seems strange. He breaks everyone free, but he doesn't have them escape. Why is he doing this? Um, the text is going to go on to, to tell us why and why God did this miracle but didn't have everybody run away, verses 28 through 30. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying to this man who was about to kill himself, the jailer, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And then the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See how God was orchestrating all this for a reason, to bring this man to repentance. This man was now thoroughly convinced of the reality that Paul and Silas' God was the one who was responsible for this uh, great miracle. And, and, and he was brought to uh, repentance as a result of it. So that, but now notice the response. What's the response to that question? What must I do to be saved? There's no more important question in the world than this question. What's the response uh, by Paul and Silas. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. <clears throat> that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He points the guy right to Christ. You want to know how to be saved? Christ. Points him right to Jesus. Amen. That's how. Um, what are maybe, just really quickly, what are maybe some other, because that question has been asked before in the book of Acts so far to the other apostles. What have been some of the other responses? Just what's the wording um, when people have been asked, what must I do to be saved? Yes, sir. Well, Jesus himself said that you must be born again. Right? Yeah. You know, That's Jesus necessary. Over 
must be born again. What about just exactly in the book of Acts? That is, that is true. You must be born again. But even, if, even to you, if somebody asks you, say, say you've, say you've uh, been sharing the gospel with somebody for years, and you go through a hard, hard struggle in your life, and you suffer faithfully, and God, see, and, and God uses that to, to minister to this other person you've been sharing the gospel with forever, and they say, man, there is something. You know what I mean? This God that they trust in, they really, it's a real faith. Why aren't they all messed up like I am? You know what I mean? Who is this God who, who gives this faith? And they start asking you, what, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to, uh, you know, not come under the wrath of God? What's going to be your answer? What, Amelia? Well, I just think back to Acts, you know, mm-hmm. Acts 2.38, uh, repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, the, that was the message. That's another response, repent and be baptized? Kind of like it's important to keep repentance and faith almost, you know, inseparable. Obviously, you know, when Paul says believe in the Lord Jesus, he didn't mean you know, anything less than, you know, to repent, you know, by believing in him, or believing in him is repenting, you know, uh, through repentance. Exactly. That's very important. The, in, even in the book of Acts, when this question is asked, you almost see an interchange in the answer, what must I do to be saved? Repent. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. The, 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 the conversion is, is just, a, yeah, Mike, go ahead. Uh, also, uh, maybe some people don't know this, but the word repent or repentance means mm-hmm. is to turn your way of thinking, change your way of thinking, mm-hmm. turn around to the thinking of Christ or to God. Yeah. How God thinks. Away from what? Away from you. Away so from you, your yourself, sin, your sin. Your, your deception, your ignorance, yep. whatever it may be. Good. Know the truth. Yeah. Turn from your sins. Yeah. And turn, yes, Josh. I think it's a good description is what Paul uses in his testimony. Um, there in, uh, in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, he's quoting in Acts 26, he says, rescuing, um, actually, to, he says, it's to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified, sanctified by faith in me. That was the mission he was given by Jesus. Oh, and the call, mm-hmm. his call, yeah. So, yeah, it's a good description of like what's happening there as far as the repentance and faith. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Repentance of change, turning from darkness to light. Yeah, so let's go on because we we don't have but just a couple minutes. Let's see how far we can get. If not, we'll pick up next time. It's okay. Um, verses 32 through 34 here. Um, God was was doing all this miraculous things to save more than just the jailer. Same with Lydia. He's going to say his whole household as well get saved. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him, meaning the jailer together with all those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Now the jailer's washing Paul and Silas's wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. Verse 34 is very important. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his, ho- his, with his whole household. The reason I just say verse 34 is important is because many people use like these household baptisms you know, the, the language of this whole household baptism to, to usually include, like, infant baptism. You know, well, of course, it says the whole household, so they baptize their babies. But even in verse 34, even in the midst of a household baptism, it specifically says that they all believed, which is something an infant's not going to hear the gospel and believe it. So, of course, we know the baptisms were limited to those who believed. I just thought it's, it's there in the text, so it's, it's helpful to see. Um, so... 
Um, Paul and Silas are still under this jailer's watch, really. They haven't, they haven't fled. The jailer's just brought them into their, his house. They're still under arrest. Um, but what happens, it seems like all these men, the Philippian authorities who arrested them in the first place, it seems like they've, they've realized they've acted too rashly by throwing them in prison in the first place. So verse 35 says, Now when day came, the magistrates, the chief magistrates and their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without a trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're trying to send us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. So the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, um, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So now here's another law that we're seeing that's affecting this whole situation. There was a law against beating publicly Roman citizens without a trial. Paul, little did they know, Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens. They're Jews, but they're Roman citizens. And so this was another law that, if broken, would be punishable by death as well. That's why these men were in great fear that they had thrown these Jews, not knowing they were Romans, beaten them, thrown them in prison. They were terrified if, if this was to, to, to be exposed. They would have then been in danger of, of punishment. Um, Paul knew this law because he was a Roman citizen. He knew this law. He actually appeals to it later in Acts. But, uh, but here um, we just see Paul feeling the inclination to, to hold their feet to the fire for a little while, you know. Just kind of, just, I don't know, I don't know why he does it really, but he kind of holds their feet to the fire, they, you know, just to, just to um, show them the rashness and mistreatment of, of what just happened. It is just, it's, it's almost kind of funny, you know. There's this Paul in prison, I guarantee he doesn't want to be there, but there's a miraculous earthquake that opened up the doors, he doesn't flee. The jailers come and tell them, hey, you're free, get out of here, but they still don't leave, you know, but eventually... Eventually, Paul leaves. Verse 40 says they went out of... Yeah, yeah, One second, before you move on from Good. there, I just, I just thought maybe I'd point out that aside from why he does this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe a more theological you know, observation here, mm-hmm. it's just that you know, God uh, does expect Christians to utilize their civil rights if need be, mm-hmm. so long as it is within... In, in keeping with God's will. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know what I mean, us you know, taking someone to court, for example, if they do us wrong. Uh, Good point. In, in a way like this, you know what I mean, where our, our basic human civil rights have been violated. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? I think it's, and the law is there. You know, it's right. biblical justification to do something Good. like that. You know, we're not, we're Christians, but we're not doormats, you know. Good example. Yeah, very good. That could come into play any time we're out, you know, preaching the gospel and try to unjustly, like, do something to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the law is there to protect you, I mean, you know. Yeah, just enough. I was just thinking as far as like how the whole missionary journey worked out too mm-hmm. is you've got a colony. A colony is probably going to be more settled than because you've got the Hellenization uh, previously and then you've got a Roman actual colony so there's going to be more Roman infrastructure there yep. to uh, help understand Roman citizenry. It might be a little bit different on an outlying outpost. You know, right. you're in you're in a Roman colony. That's saying a lot because that means you have actual seats that are representing directly magistrates that are directly corresponding with Caesar. Probably, you probably have uh, maybe a legion legion there or a centurion station there. So you've got a lot of Rome's laws that are really being recognized, and that that would add impact 
to how much these guys would fear. Because they're in a Roman colony that's going to be, you know, they're out messing around. But at the same side, with the mission whole thing, I think there's a, there's a hint of the meticulous sovereignty of God and all that. And mm -hmm. that when you have a Roman colony where people settle from all over the Roman Empire, retired soldiers and centurions and magistrates right. and whatnot, yeah. you've got people that are going to be heavily influencing from Praetorian Guard to uh, Caesar himself. Yep. Uh, that culture can be infiltrated much more strongly with a powerful presentation of the gospel. Even someone that was willing to suffer wrong to a point, even though he was a Roman citizen, because he believed in this gospel so much. So I think that could be good as far as strategic wisdom of God. You know? Strategic wisdom. Because sometimes Paul doesn't appeal. Well, look, in the first place, why didn't he shout out as he's getting beaten, hey, we're Romans? Yeah. Why, well, he didn't do it then. He could have, but, you know, so there is some tr strategic sovereignty of God issues going on here, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's wrap up. What we saw today, let me summarize it like this because it's beautiful. What we saw was the Spirit of God saving people today through the gospel, right? The Spirit of God. But notice how differently the Spirit of God worked in both of these salvations. The first, ca the first case, the Spirit blew very softly, the spirit, when it said it opened the heart of Lydia while she was sitting there by the nice peaceful river, you know, opened her heart, she believed the gospel and was saved. Right? Very, nothing crazy happened. Look at the next case. The spirit came with this thunderous earthquake, shaking the ground, breaking this prison open, rescuing this man from nearly committing suicide. See the difference how the spirit, how these conversions were brought apart? It's really amazing. Um, yeah, so here we just see the Spirit working and blowing where and how He wishes. Um, I, thought, I thought that was ama amazing. What's the fruit? How can you know if somebody's been, if the Spirit has in fact blown on somebody in, the, in this salvific way? How can you know whether the Spirit has done that work or not? Can you know? By their actions? By their Yeah. What they say, the fruit. The fruit? That's a good word. Um, the, the, yeah. the, the guard saying, well, what, what, what must I do to be saved? Good question that the Spirit's blown. Yeah. Yeah, the Spirit's going to produce, which is what we talked about earlier, the gift of God in His, in his Spirit uh, bringing salvation is repentance and faith, which, which brings somebody to salvation. They're going to say, what must I do to be saved? They're going to be humble before God. They're going to want to know what they must do to be saved. They're not going to fight God anymore. That's right. I can't help but think uh, something may have happened to those prisoners as well. They actually... Says that they listened mm -hmm. to the, uh, the the prayers and the, and the hymns. Exactly. And uh, they didn't flee. I know. There was something going on there. I don't know if they got saved or I don't know either. Yeah, I wonder. Well, let's pray. We gotta go. We gotta go. Father, uh, Father, we thank you, God, that your Spirit has blown in our direction, God, and done this work for us. Father, why we were not seeking you, why we were at enmity with you, God, you rescued us. Father, you changed our hearts. You gave us faith and repentance, God. And Father, we will, we will thank you forever for this gift of salvation. God, we pray that our church would be encouraged today in the worship service. God, I pray that you would stir us up to worship you more. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Uh, bless Pastor Milo as he preaches to us. Father, help us take advantage of this, this, this time of having open Bibles, God, to, to study your word in depth. With Father, with uh, God-honoring clarity. Uh, so we pray you'll bless Pastor Emilio's mouth and bless our ears as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen.